slowly fading in to this week's Freightonomics episode, where we're going to talk a little bit about the rail and port situations that continue to clutter up supply chains. But we also brought on Dr. Zach Rogers because we had some video or some, I guess, some Wi-Fi issues on our end uh, last week. So we're going to continue the discussion with him. I'm Zach Strickland, head of freight market intelligence here at Freight Waves. And with me, as always, is the illustrious chief economist, Anthony Smith, that will be ignoring you intermittently throughout the show. That's right. I'm going to be looking down here. If you want to jump in, you want to be a part of the show, you can do that because we're streaming live on LinkedIn. If you happen to be watching at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on this Thursday afternoon, evening, day, Thursday, day, I don't know what day it is anymore. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to be looking down. If you want to jump into the conversation, you have anything to add, feel free to join in on the conversation. When I cancel Zach, you can do that too. I'll be watching for those show comments and anything that you want to have shout out here. So feel free. Absolutely. So yeah, without further ado, we got a lot to cover because, uh, you know, supply chains have, are, are not easing up. They're not, we're not getting easier. <laughs> uh, there's still a lot of clutter and congestion out there in the space. Dr. Z is going to come on here in a minute and we're going to continue the conversation with him. But first, I wanted to cover a few hot stories. And this is going to kind of set the table uh, for what we're going to dive into, you know, throughout the show. Um, so headline of the day, uh, is, uh, Los Angeles port boss fix import rail service or risk nationwide log jam. So basically there's been so much congestion around the ports and the railheads at these ports. You know, we talked about freight volumes declining, you know, surface transportation, truckload, uh, it's truckload and rail. <laughs> and really the rail volumes are biased towards these larger shippers because you got to have a lot of volume for this to work at scale. It also gives you preferential treatment <laughs> uh, at the rails, like your negotiating leverage because they, they thrive on volume. One or two containers, I mean, it exists, but this is, some, this is a function that is very dominated by the larger shippers because they have the infrastructure and the money to support that infrastructure for this type of movement. Uh, but there were 444,000 TUs of imports, down 5% uh, year over year, but up 12% from the trailing five-year average at the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Uh, it was the second best June on record for imports. Um, so there's still a lot of containers coming yeah. in <laughs> yeah. uh, for the month of June. And, and so it's, you know, we're starting to see things kind of go down a little bit, but the rail service has been a complete congestion nightmare. Um, yeah. And we're and we're talking about a strike here in another article. Yeah, and, and Zach, when we're talking about rail movements, what's the the sense of urgency when goods are being moved on rail v versus like freight? Yeah, and that's that's another component of this is that a lot of this freight that was going straight on trucks last year is now converted back to the rail. Uh, and this sense of urgency is lower. Uh, you know, it takes a longer amount of time to dray it off the port. Again, another relational aspect of this to AB5. Owner operators are no longer as, as available, but still shippers don't have the same sense of urgency in July that they do in October and November as they're trying to fulfill, the, especially retail shippers, I should say. It does it, you know, everybody has their own season, but yeah, the sense of urgency is down on the, on the rail side, but it's also this pileup of containers is what's contributing to this inefficiency. And uh, asked whether the decline in June versus May was due to rail issues, uh, Gene Soroka uh, stated, if we're not moving in sync, we've got to handle containers more than once 
And that takes time and money and it takes efficiencies out of the system. Uh, effectively saying, yes, <laughs> it does It does deteriorate the efficiency. And whereas the sense of urgency isn't necessarily there right now, it's still contributing to a lot of, if you do need some inventory in right now, and you know we talked about mismatching of inventories, uh, and I'm, something I'm gonna ask Dr. Rogers here in a minute, uh, you can't get it in cleanly. Can't get it in cleanly. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a huge part. And I mean, we're looking at inventories. This is a conversation that we we're talking about a little bit last week as well. Um, and, and different shows because we, we tag team on shows and uh, webinars from time to time. So one of the other areas that I've been curious about is, okay, you move some of these inventories. Some of these inventories are time sensitive. That's going to be some are going to say deflationary pressures on certain industries or certain segments, very small segments but there's going to be a replenishment that's going to have to happen. And then that doesn't mean that the supply chain issues were worked out just because there's been a somewhat of a drawdown or maybe a fire sale or just a movement or a shifting of certain inventories or certain goods because the supply chain issues are still structural. Some of them are still there. They're just going to be moved to a different part or different segment of the supply chain. And now you're looking at that replenishment aspect. Inflationary pressures are still going to likely persist at a pretty high level. Yeah, even as demand's falling, yeah. we still have some inflationary pressures, especially when you're talking about things like AB5, adding some extra layer of, you know, navigation, yeah. <laughs> depending on your perspective in the market. So that's probably going to increase prices a little bit. Uh, the next story here, uh, so con compounding the issues, uh, rail union members could go on strike Monday amid contract impasse. Now, members of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen uh, one of the rail labor unions involved in negotiations between rail workers and the freight railroads uh, have decided that going on strike is an option. Now, talk to Mike Mountendistel about this. Uh, he basically, he, you know, he gave us a one-liner. So I want to answer this and move on <laughs> for any of you that are interested in this. Uh, it would only be a legal strike if the Biden administration does not appoint a president, a presidential emergency board in the next few days, which it will almost certainly do. Appointment would start the second of three 30-day cooling off periods. So it is unlikely there would be a strike before mid-September. And even if one happens then, I expect Congress to order the workers back to work in short order. So long story short, nothing to see here. <laughs> yeah. And the other big thing is when you're thinking about strikes, I know we're talking about this uh, component here, but we're talking about just yesterday with AB5. The thing that always comes to my mind is money talks and what you see a uh, lack of capacity and what you see that there's a shift in actual people being able to do something mm -hmm. that money goes up and it gets a little bit more lucrative to jump in or just like, you know what, maybe the strike isn't such a, a good idea. You got to say it. Uh, yeah. And, and then <laughs> no. jump back in. You're negotiating. Um, real quick here. I have a shout out here from uh, Fairza Preet saying ground freight has completely stopped. I'm wondering... Where has all the fresh food and dry freight, dry freight has been slowed down? Not good for drivers throughout the entire world. So thanks for joining on the conversation yeah. here. Um, no, no, the trucking, the truck transportation has already felt this, this decline. The yeah. rail volumes haven't really declined as significantly, but service issues persist and, and whatnot. But rail's a little different than the truckload sector. Well, last thing I want to talk about before we bring on Dr. Z, uh, this kind of also, you know, gives a little bit bigger context context to how shippers are changing and adapting their methodologies to all these congestive behaviors uh, sitting out there on the West Coast, um, especially since 
<laughs> more regulation, more activity, more potential disruption on the West versus the East. Uh, Port of Virginia boasts record volumes in 2022. Uh, and this is, of course, due to the fact that, um, you know, a lot of these shipments are coming in on the East Coast versus the West Coast. A little bit less congestion issues, Port of Virginia closer to the end user for the retail uh, side of things as well. Uh, it may spend a little bit more time on the boat, but the costs have been comparable year over year. Uh, and this isn't just on, at Virginia. You know, they were talking, they also cite North Charleston Terminal. Uh, and Leatherman Terminal totaling 2.85 million TEUs, up 12% year over year. Uh, Port of New York, New Jersey, uh, the second busiest cargo month in its history in May, with volume rising 6.1%. Anthony Smith. New York, New Jersey is the second largest port conglomerate in the United States, and it had its second busiest month in May. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this is going to be one of those areas that I think we saw happening somewhat last year mm -hmm. uh, with the shift to the East Coast. Yeah. And this is one of those areas that we're also talking about where the infrastructure might be, you know, second or third, you know, largest or whatever it might be. But it's nowhere in comparison to what we're seeing on the West Coast. It's like saying that 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 conversation is always about, hey, are we going to nearshore from uh, China? Mm -hmm. Maybe in some steps, in some instances, in some cases, but... There is just such uh, infrastructure built up there that can't be mimicked right. uh, overnight in Mexico. It can't be mimicked if you want to find another supplier, another manufacturer in Southeast Asia, for example. It just can't get mimicked uh, at, you know, redirecting some of those areas. But this kind of goes right straight down that line. Yeah. Let's bring, let's bring on the man with a plan because I want to ask him a few of these questions and what he thinks. I know he was just... Uh, quoted in another uh, website, another article uh, talking about some of this stuff uh, on marketplace.org. Uh, Ports tackle vessel dwell times to reduce backups. Talking about support. So first, welcome to the show, Dr. Rogers. Thanks for coming back for a second week. <laughs> hey, guys. Good good to see you. Hopefully you can all hear me. I, I put rabbit ears on the back of my uh, laptop, so hopefully we won't have the same issue we had last week. You know what? You're showing your age, aren't you? Without telling us your age. Rabbit ears. I bet a lot of people don't know what those are. Uh, so let's let's knock it down, uh, Dr. Rogers. So, you know, let's talk about how these dwell times, you know, the time that, you know, this freight is sitting around at these yards and at the ports. How is it impacting supply chains from your perspective? Sure. Well, the dwell times right now are huge. I mean, it's funny because you don't see nearly the amount of ships coming in uh, to the, the ports on the West Coast. But but I think the port of Long Beach now has just as many containers <laughs> as they did back in October. And that's a really weird dynamic where the inputs have slowed down significantly, if you compare, say, now to October, but the output has slowed down as well, right? We're, we're still getting this, this buildup. And a lot of that has to do with a lack of capacity further upstream, or sorry, further downstream mm -hmm. in the supply chain. You know, in our, our most recent report, warehousing capacity came in at 41. And that was um, a pretty big number for us for, for a couple reasons. One, now 22 months in a row of contraction <laughs> for, for everyone who, who doesn't remember anything over, under 50 is contraction, over 50 is expansion. So 22 months in a row of, of contraction. Plus, it's a shift from what we thought we might have been seeing at the end of May. You know, when we broke May in half, in the second half of May, we actually saw for the first time a little bit of, of growth. It was like, you know, 50.4 or something. So it was barely growth. But, you know, it's water in the desert. We thought, okay, maybe now 
we're, you know, the economy's slowing down, we're running inventories down, we're gonna start to move towards having actual capacity uh, in the supply chain somewhere. Didn't happen. Back down, uh, back down another six points to uh, a 41. And that really speaks to just the amount of stuff um, that's that's in the, the supply chain right now. Inventories, I think, came in at a 71.8 in June. That was the fifth out of six months uh, this year that we had a number over the 70s. Before 2022, we had only been over the 70s twice. Okay, we'd only been in the 70s twice. So five of our, our six biggest months essentially have come since January. All right, and so what that means is stuff just isn't going to move through. We're not going to have that level of throughput that we want because there's nowhere to put anything. Um, and because consumer spending has slowed down, now slowed down in some ways. I will point out, uh, I will point out it has slowed down, but, you know, Amazon Prime Day uh, was was Tuesday and, and Wednesday this week. So, you know, happy holidays. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and they sold like 300 million items or something. Interestingly, they didn't put out the total, uh, you know, sales number, which they normally do, like the dollar amount. I don't know why they're being coy about that this year. I think maybe they don't want everybody to know how much they're playing into inflation. I'm not sure. Uh, But, you know, the economy still moves. It's just that it's not moving fast enough to get all this stuff cleared off the docks. And with what's going to start happening with Drehitz drivers uh, over the next few weeks because of AB5, I don't know how much faster we're going to see it get. And... and Dr. Rogers, um, great to have you on as always. We're looking at this situation, of course. Um, were there any significant shifts that you saw this latest LMI with the first half of the month versus the latter half of the month? And is this month shaping up any differently? You know, what's funny is, is I checked that, that, you know, first half, second half, and there wasn't much difference. Uh, there wasn't anything that we would call statistically significant when we look at the first half and the second half. Now, where we did find some differences was in our upstream-downstream comparison. So if you look at upstream and downstream, our, our, our big differences were warehousing utilization and warehousing price, okay? So warehousing utilization, we saw our downstream firms, so this would be mainly retailers, came in 13 points higher, a 77 relative to a 64. Both rates of growth, but 77, a much quicker rate of growth, came in much higher for utilization, which tells us that retailers basically have no space available. So because retailers have no space available, they're pushing uh, either orders back or stopping orders from coming in with their upstream vendors. And that's reflected in that we see upstream uh, came in at an 83 for warehousing prices, whereas downstream is only a 69. So you have this funny dichotomy where we're using more space more quickly downstream but the prices are flying up upstream because all of these upstream vendors are having to buy more warehouse space, probably spot market prices or less than ideal places or whatever it is. And their warehousing costs are going up in an 83, which is you know similar rates of growth to what we're seeing over the last year. So not a lot, Anthony, in terms of first half, second half of June. June was fairly consistent. We are seeing, though, a big difference in how inventories are affecting folks, either downstream retailers or upstream with the distributors and the wholesalers. Is it is it too early to ask about the first half of July? I know we're just now hitting like the 14th, but have you seen, have you had anything mm-hmm. uh, reported on that yet? 
You know what? We haven't we haven't run the uh, the July numbers yet. We like okay. to have them trickling for a little <laughs> bit longer right. rather than the 14th, especially in, in July, because you don't usually just pull it back the curtain. You don't usually get a ton of responses in the first week of July. Yeah. Well, yeah. The fourth and people on vacation and That's things like point. that. So I could tell you numbers right now and then they will be totally different in two weeks. So. Well, you know, you know, we like that high frequency data. So we <laughs> we, uh, yeah. we we look at our stuff and, I, you know, most of the stuff that we've seen hasn't shown a tremendous change and dynamic. But I think generally when we look at July, we kind of assume that things, it's a kind of an easing month, you know, because it's the first month of a quarter. Seasonally speaking, like you just said, everybody takes a vacation. So we sort of see this kind of slowdown in July. It's the summer doldrums, if you will. Uh, And I didn't know if you'd seen anything yet, but we'll we'll talk about that in August uh, at, at, at that point. But so I like this upstream and downstream thing. Uh, When you talk about the upstream, you're, of course, talking more about the, you know, production, all this supply, like it's the stuff that happens, you know, the supply side, people are getting ready to sell stuff, you know, it's not necessarily a finished good yet. Are we seeing like uh, such a, is the port and rail activity really kind of adding to that congestive behavior, like since they can't kind of get it out or are shippers kind of enjoying this stalling out because they can kind of blame it on somebody else. <laughs> I mean, I, I think everyone in the supply chain loves to, to shift the blame. I mean, <laughs> I, I think they're probably having a great time. But um, no, for the dwell times are absolutely hurting us okay. uh, upstream, I believe. You know, uh, GM just announced, hey, 95,000 cars aren't going to come out uh, when, when we thought they were going to, mainly because of congestion issues. I mean, it has to do with the shortage of of components, but that shortage of components is due to congestion. Right. Right. And so there's a lot of issues, I think. Now, what's funny is when you do look upstream, like in in the most recent government data that came out, you know, production of things like steel and aluminum and and those raw components stayed pretty high throughout June. So it's funny because in some ways it's, we're seeing something different from 2019, which is the last great recession. In 2019, the industrial sector was flat. And the consumer economy was really, really hot. What we're seeing right now is the consumer economy being the one to slow the rate of growth. Now, we still haven't seen uh, an actual contraction in the consumer economy, just a slowed rate of growth. And upstream, just and, and this is only looking, you know, reading the tea leaves, looking at production of commodities like aluminum, steel, lumber, things like that, it seems to still be fairly strong. And so it's interesting to kind of, you know, I, I know it's it's easy to say, oh, this will be like 2019 was, but there's still some weird differences. And I and I think the way to really suss those out is to look at that split between upstream and downstream and see that now more of the slowness is coming downstream as compared to what we saw in 2019. And uh, Zach, can you also touch into a subject I think is really critical when looking at different components on the supply chain? And that's one where there are unfinished goods that are still moving throughout the country that aren't quite finished yet. That's right. Yeah, the, the work in process inventory is is a huge <laughs> issue right now um, because you know we, we I think when we think about it, oh, there's so much inventory, and we might think, oh, it's all the winter coats we didn't get to sell last year because they got here too late. Well, it's also just a lot of incomplete stuff, right? There's so many half built computers, partially built trucks. I mean, we've talked about that picture of all the F-150s sitting on the uh, Kentucky Motor Speedway. 
that, that's $2 billion of products that's just sitting there. It can't be sold. Now, as we talked about, I think maybe last time I was on the show, some, some mice uh, decided they were a nice place to live for the winter. So they didn't go totally, uh, it wasn't a total wash to have all that out there. But we have all of this work in process inventory just sitting there waiting to go. So it, it's not just, you know, it's okay, how are companies dealing with this? Well, uh, Walmart and Costco, we're going to have big discounts. Target, we're going to have discounts and maybe we're going to cancel orders. Under Armour is going to cancel orders. All that's great. Maybe we can send it to, um, you know, secondary market companies. You know, Burlington Coat Factory, their CEO last week said, we're dealing with companies that have never wanted to talk to us before uh, because they thought they were above us. And, and so there's all this stuff going into secondary markets. They are hitting their limit, by the way. Secondary markets can't just keep taking stuff up. But beyond that, beyond the sort of traditional inventory where you might have an idea of how you can get rid of it, we also have the stuff that's just not ready yet. And that ties back into the congestion problems. When we have a situation where we can't get containers off the ports, when we have 10-mile, 20-mile traffic jams and rail lines in, in the middle of the, the country, we're not going to get those components to the places quickly enough where we can finish the products and hopefully sell them off. I mean, you think that we wouldn't have a lot of people lining up to buy cars right now if we could complete them? We haven't been able, no one's been able to get a new car for the last two years. And so the congestion, it's funny, the congestion caused by things like clothes, furniture, electronics, whatever, some of the things that might be completed are right now part of the reasons why we can't complete all our work and process inventory because we have so much stuff that's just jamming up the supply chain. So, I mean, that's fascinating to think about, like, the, you know, stuff that you can't sell is kind of blocking the progress for the stuff you can in a way. So the short-term strategy is basically, like, sell as much as you can, get it out of the warehouse as quickly as possible, you know, change the distribution pattern if you can. Uh, let's talk about some of the long-term strategy. Now, what are some of the things you're hearing about how are, how are su uh, shippers, suppliers trying to hedge themselves against this behavior in the future? Because I think everybody kind of now acknowledges there is still a long-term risk for all these upstream uh, disruptions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the real challenge over Q4, uh, you know, the, the people who are really going to earn their money are going to be the ones who can thread the needle between we need to wind inventories down, but we need to not overreact right. the same way we've been overreacting <laughs> for the last two years. You know, Anthony's thing about, you know, running with both sides of your arms or whatever. Yeah, that was my best imitation of running. Uh, you know, we need, we need to shoot the line, right? So, so we don't, you know, go too far one way or, or too far in the other direction. Um, in terms of how we solve this, you know, there's the things like semiconductors, rare earths, where you do see a push for, for, for reshoring. I also have seen a lot, a lot of, of nearshoring um, come out in the last couple months. Um, Mattel, Nike, a lot of these big brands are really trying to pull things over to the Western Hemisphere. Obviously, a lot of uh, a, a lot of focus is on Mexico. The issue, of course, with Mexico is we don't have that same infrastructure that we do in China. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you can come over here and go somewhere like El Salvador, for instance, and even though that will be much cheaper. Uh, than China, you don't have the rail yards and and the big docks and the ports and just the investment isn't there yet. So that's one thing uh, I think that we're we're starting to see move over quickly. The other thing is trying to move away from a focus just on one path. You know, the idea that everything has to go through L.A., Long Beach, through Chicago on rail or whatever, and then, uh, you know, out to people. 
there's a lot of congestion, obviously, right? It's like we have one highway between all of our big cities, which we actually do in Colorado. And it's a terrible, <laughs> it's a terrible idea. And so we see more focus on New York, New Jersey, Savannah, Charleston, places like that. You know, if you look at a marine traffic picture of the Suez Canal, it's pretty busy right now because of everybody going around in the East Coast. And then the other part of it is, finally, some of these, these places that have been trying to be inland ports forever, say Salt Lake City, Las Vegas, places like that, they're finally getting, getting some traction. You know, the inland port, uh, the, the Salt Lake City Port Authority, mm. which is hilarious every time I say it, Salt Lake City Port Authority, uh, <laughs> was pretty busy uh, over the last few months, right? We're, we're starting to just, hey, we'll just we'll send the rail cars there and we'll, we'll unpack it when we get to Salt Lake City. And so it's the move away, I think, from reliance on one single path. You know, the idea for years in supply chain has been, let's build economies of scale, make things as cheap as they can be. And the way to do that is to have one giant path that we get everything down. And now it turns out, economies of scale aren't actually that affordable when they stop working. (laughs) And so I think we're going to continue to see this sort of distribution, not just externally with suppliers, but internally with ports and the way we move things around from those ports. I think that that's amazing. And we need more time with Dr. Zach Rogers. (laughs) This is our own doing right here. But (laughs) Dr. Rogers, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll be sure to have you back on very, very shortly. And thank you all so much for tuning in. This has been Freightonomics, and we go live every Thursday, Zach, you and I, and we try to wrangle in Dr. Zach Rogers anytime we can. Yeah, hopefully here in a few weeks, we get to get a little update on that July uh, LMI. Uh, July's a big month, I think, for transportation. I'm be, I'll be curious to see what the LMI does. I'm working on it. Right? <laughs> You've had 14 days, Dr. Rogers. Let's, <laughs> this is summer. This is summer vacation we'll for you, man. You should, be, you should be all over it all oh, day long. That's exactly oh. why I haven't done it yet. <laughs> hey, shout out to James Jackson and Donna Rand in the comment section. Drink a little water, everybody.